Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast, where we like to explore mental health and your favorite fictional characters. My name is Brandon Saxton. And I'm Katie Gordon. Hey Katie, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm excited to be podcasting again. We were off a couple weeks due to travel and illness. Absolutely. That's what I'm wondering. Where do I talk? Where do I look? <laughs> I've, I've been off the air for so long, it's going to just, it feels unnatural. I feel like I'm a stranger to the microphone. It's true. If we're rusty, forgive us, folks. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure which way to look. I'm looking all over. Uh, my voice is going to be very variable because I'm just not pointing my face at the microphone. So, so uh, adjust your volume accordingly throughout the entire episode, I guess. <laughs> uh, I have a current event for you, Katie. Okay. So this, forgive me, because this is a podcast about mental health and sort of geeky nerdiness, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that connection, but you're going to need to do a little mental gymnastics with me. Okay. <laughs> so Nintendo is putting out a new um, gaming system called the Nintendo Switch. People are really excited about it. It's sort of portable and got these cool handles and... I don't know all the details about it, but it, people are pumped about it. What's cool about the Nintendo Switch is it has little game cartridges, and, and pe- people who are listening can't see, but I'm holding up the sides with my finger right now. He is. I it, can verify that. It, it's about like uh, an inch by an inch and a half sort of rectangle little thing. And what's interesting about these game cartridges um, that you put into the Switch to play is that they have been engineered to taste really bad hmm. uh, to avoid... The risk of children and animals um, consuming them. Hmm. So I thought that was a very interesting that's and proactive smart. move by Nintendo. Uh, not something that's really been done before. So there's sort of videos popping up of people who have gotten to do early reviews on games sort of tapping their tongue to the <laughs> cartridges a little bit uh, and showing their grimacing faces uh, as they taste technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's very clever because I know I wish they would do something like that with um, like those dish soap pods of the um, oh, dishwasher detergent. I know kids keep eating those. I heard that hot dogs, they actually change the circumference of based on kids choking on oh, them. Oh, really? Yeah. I wasn't familiar with that, but so, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think choking is sort of one of these things that I don't know. It doesn't get a lot of attention relative to how commonplace it actually mm-hmm. is. Is sort of my sense of it. So it's great when you see companies like this who are kind of trying to cut it off at, right at the front there, and let's mm-hmm. let's make a change on a more systemic level to try to prevent that. I think it's awesome. Definitely, in honor of the late great Heimlich of the Heimlich maneuver oh. fam, who died in within the last year. Oh wow! I didn't realize. Yeah, that, I so. didn't realize he was still alive actually. So, um, but he did a good thing. Absolutely, and, and now people are sort of following through by making uh, gross-tasting video cartridges. They're doing whatever they can to protect kids, which is always good. Let's see, when did he... Henry Heimlich, who, uh, the inventor, American thoracic, uh, thoracic... I'm not sure how you say that word. Thoracic? Thoracic, okay, surgeon. 96, he was 96. Incredible. And he died on, it says 2016. Uh, the, the 17th, it looks like. December 17th. December so, 17th. Yep, very recently. Yeah. So, thank you. Yep, thank Hi, you, Dr. Dr. Henry Heimlich. Henry Duda Heimlich. Wow, uh, so just taking in a brief look at his wiki page here, it looks like he did a lot of interesting things, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. It's uh, I mean, welcome to the new, to the Jedi Council uh, Medical <laughs> Podcast special episode of the day. I do like Sawbones a lot, but maybe uh, we should leave it to the experts. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you. We haven't checked out Sawbones yet. It's a Oof. wonderful 
Sydney McElroy yep. and, and, and Justin. And Justin, yeah. and they talk about they pick diseases or mm-hmm. medical conditions, and they talk about the history, and it's just mm-hmm. super interesting. And it's worth noting that Sydney is a doctor. Yes. As well, yeah. yeah. So that's where it's sort of the medical expertise comes from. Exactly. Yeah, they've been doing a They're great... They're not just reading Wikipedia pages no, not like, like we these are. experts. Uh, well, between us, what, we have like 20 years of formal education, and uh, here we are. So, no, um, what was I going to say? Oh, ah, well, I don't know. I can't remember anymore. It's, it's Friday, and I'm just, I'm zonked out. So the, it's, this week is a... Uh, a special or a, a well-known and established week. That's the right word for mm-hmm. it. Uh, eating Disorder Awareness Week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie, one thing that I know about you from knowing you for so many years is that you are an eating disorders researcher, or eat, rather eating disorders are part of your research program. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get started on eating disorders? Or maybe just give us a, a little background on that, just to sort of set the eating disorders stage for today's episode. Sure. When I was an undergraduate student, I was interested in studying depression, actually, and I requested um, the ability to be a research assistant in Dr. Thomas Joyner's lab because he was studying mood disorders at the time. Okay. And my first research was actually with uh, Dr. Jeremy Pettit, who was looking at some interesting effects of caffeine on mood and things like that. Okay. And after his project was done, Marisol Perez, who was a graduate student at the time, had an interesting eating disorder project that she wanted to do, but that she didn't have time to do because she was busy doing other grad school stuff. And she asked me if I wanted to use it for my honors thesis. And that project was examining whether people were better at detecting eating disorder symptoms among white individuals than black or Hispanic individuals because there were, and still there are stereotypes that eating disorders, especially those like anorexia, Mm -hmm. mostly affect white women. And so it was a pretty simple, straightforward study, experimental design where we had a little passage describing someone with displaying eating disorder symptoms had the same name in all three versions, but people were randomly assigned to read a version where she was identified as black, Hispanic, or white. And what we found is that people were more likely to say that she had an eating disorder when she was identified as white, despite the fact that all three versions had the same symptoms. Well, that's very interesting. And that was your first sort of foray into research in general. Yeah, what I learned from that is that there was a lot of need in the area of eating disorders. There were a lot of things that were unknown, There were improvements needed in the treatment of eating disorders. And so since then, I've expanded to look at things like interpersonal factors and emotional factors having to do with eating disorders. But a lot of my work still focuses on that. The other topic is suicidal behavior. Mm -hmm. So I also sometimes study suicidal behavior among people who have eating disorders. Would you say eating disorders makes up the majority of your research program? Is that fair to say? I'd say it's probably split. Sure. I I, uh, tend to go back and forth depending on my students' interests a little bit. That makes sense. Most most recently, my students have been more interested in the eating disorder aspect, so I'd say it's gone a little bit back towards the eating disorder side, whereas prior to that, I had students who were more interested in uh, the suicidal behavior. So it fluctuates a little Mm -hmm. bit. Oh, very interesting. So maybe a good place to start out then uh, in our modest contribution to Eating Disorder Awareness Week is to maybe talk a little bit about what eating disorders are because, uh, and I'm not an expert, but I do get the sense that maybe there's a lot of 
or maybe at least some misconception and misinformation just about what eating disorders are and what they really consist of. So like we've done with other disorders, maybe it'd be worth diving in and talking about what are some of the very specific um, disorders or eating disorders. Yeah, exactly. We'll talk, we'll talk about that, and then we will, as usual, connect it to somewhat to fictional characters and talk about depiction in comics and other mm-hmm. things like that, and then um, conclude by talking about treatments. Well, that sounds great. So eating disorders. Oh, I think a lot of people, when they think about eating disorders, they sort of use the terms anorexia and bulimia. That's kind of my mm-hmm. sense in the general sort of conversation, general population talking about eating disorders. But there are actually uh, three primary sort of eating disorders that we look at, if I got that right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, currently recognized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM-5, mm-hmm. are three major types of eating disorders. And then there are things that don't fit quite neatly into those categories, and they get other labels, but there are three main ones right three, now. Three ones that have the very specific diagnostic criteria. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And they're a little bit longer in name than just anorexia and bulimia, as mm-hmm. people maybe more commonly refer to them. So well, what you have for those three primary eating disorders in the DSM-5 are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder are sort of those three big ones that you have. So maybe we can dive in on anorexia nervosa first. Okay, that sounds good. So anorexia nervosa, what you're looking at here, the sort of definition or the defining features of the disorder uh, consists of a very significantly low body weight, um, intense fear of fat or behavior that interferes with weight gain, overvalue of weight and shape, and then you have really two different distinct types. You have the restricting type and the binge purge type. And from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong or chime in additional details, the restricting type is really, uh, you're gonna, that's going to be more individuals who are just having a very low caloric intake, whereas the binge purge type are individuals who are going to eat the bigger quantities and then purge it in some way. If I got that about... Yeah, so for binge purge, it can be either binging or purging. Oh, so sure. sometimes even eating small amounts and purging, you can okay. kind of see that. One thing that might be worth us explaining a little bit more, because I don't think that it's... A commonly discussed part of eating disorders is the idea of overvaluation of weight and shape. Sure. And what that specifically means is that when people have eating disorders, they tend to view the most important aspect of their mood and their concept of themselves as having to do with their weight and shape. So, for example, that could mean someone stepping on a scale, and if they've gained a pound, they feel horrible about themselves as a person, not mm-hmm. just that maybe they're not following their diet or mm-hmm. whatever it is. They feel badly more globally than someone without an eating disorder. If they've lost a few pounds, they might feel good as a person and have positive mood. And so what we see in eating disorders is really this exaggerated impact or influence of weight and shape such that it's kind of distorts the ability to see other good things about oneself and other mm-hmm. important things in life, which is really a sad part of the disorder and part of what what makes it so hard for people to stop engaging in the behaviors. So it really becomes one of the most defining features for that person, sort of how they conceptualize mm-hmm. themselves as a good person or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not just someone, oh, I gained a few pounds because I ate too much. It's more, I'm not a good person because okay. I gained weight. And to be a good person or to be whatever kind of person that means I have to lose weight or change the shape of my body. So that makes it uh, 
clear or it helps to it helps one understand why that's so impairing of course Mm -hmm. uh when you have that tying that your very essence of yourself of your perception of yourself as a person being tied to something like that yeah yeah and to be clear a lot of people are impacted by their weight and shape but Mm -hmm. with eating disorders it's at a more excessive level sure so maybe ranked higher than other things like uh for example for me uh, being a good student or being a good friend things like that Mm -hmm. it would be uh, someone with an eating disorder might rank that ahead of those sort of things. Exactly. Sure. Uh, other things that we know about anorexia nervosa, um, it's, uh, it has about a 1% lifetime prevalence rate. Uh, about 90 to 95% of the individuals who experience anorexia nervosa are female. And by the very definition of the disorder, these individuals are going to be underweight. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times you typically see anorexia nervosa uh, manifest between the ages of about you know, 15 to 19 um, sometimes there's earlier age of onset, and uh, when you do have, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, you'll mm-hmm. be covering the treatments, of course. When you are able to catch it at a little bit of that earlier age and get those earlier treatments, uh, this is typically associated with a, some better outcomes uh, for the course of the disorder. Um, and about 5 to 8% of these individuals who experience anorexia nervosa, nervosa um, actually do end up dying prematurely um, due to the disorder and some of the associated health features. That's right. So some of it's due to medical complications, but that number also has to do with suicides. Anorexia nervosa in multiple studies has been found to be the deadliest mental disorder mm-hmm. that it's most associated with premature death, and a significant portion of that is suicide as an outcome. But again, uh, the multiple medical problems that also contribute to that. Um, all right, so uh, anything else that you want to say about that before we jump into bulimia nervosa? No, let's go ahead and All right, that. so bulimia nervosa, uh, the, to sort of define the disorder a little bit for folks, bulimia uh, consists of binge eating. And binge eating, what that really is, is uh, it consists of two things. Uh, so you're eating a large amount of food, and you're experiencing a lack of control uh, while eating that food. Um, so I think it might be worth, maybe we could give an example of a large amount of food, just sure. to give it, because I think... Uh, people subjectively think different oh, things, but maybe yeah. an example of a binge that someone's told you about sure. in, in within a clinical realm. Yeah, uh, so I, one specific example that I pops into the top of my head from a, a case conference that we had, it wasn't someone that I saw but I remember hearing about, was um, an individual who uh, on the way home after work would stop and get a certain amount of five cheeseburger or double cheeseburgers from McDonald's, uh, eat those, and then would go home um, not tell their significant other partner about the previous food that they ate and then would ate a specific meal of, uh, I think it was um, a, maybe a whole pizza uh, with mm-hmm. at home uh, for dinner after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one example. Yeah, um, other ones I've heard of, uh, pe- someone who's eaten an entire box of cereal, someone who's had mm-hmm. a half gallon of ice cream mm-hmm. in one sitting. So we're talking about food that is much more than most people would eat in that same situation. Absolutely. Um, And other things that are associated with bulimia nervosa are inappropriate compensatory behaviors. Uh, So this can be sort of things like um, after eating that you feel like you absolutely have to go to the gym uh, and exercise to a degree that could almost be harmful for you or you're missing other obligations or things like that. Uh, It could be things such as, you know, uh, taking diet pills in response or taking laxatives or things like that. Just really anything that is uh, sort of an inappropriate or a maladaptive way to compensate for the food that you ate. 
previously. Yeah, and I would say vomiting is the most common that you see clinically with bulimia nervosa. I mean, you see some of the other stuff too. And something important to note about that that surprises uh, individuals with bulimia when I'm working with them is that most of the calories are absorbed before the food is vomited. So actually vomiting the food can make a person's stomach feel empty, but it doesn't stop calorie absorption. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I tell them this is to hope show um, as an incentive to stop vomiting because mm -hmm. it, the reason you see tend to see weight loss actually in people who have bulimia is that in between binges they often restrict their diet quite a bit mm -hmm. and so their overall calories tend to still be lower or fall within a normal range of course there's a lot of variability but that's mm -hmm. kind of a common presentation and beyond that and i think a lot of people are familiar with this but repeated vomiting like that has its own sort of medical complications associated with that mm -hmm. uh, damage to your teeth or your mouth your esophagus a lot of things like that uh, electrolyte imbalances mm -hmm. which are very dangerous so it, exactly there are a, a lot of things that happen to that um, happen to people who experience that and it can feel very much like an out of control behavior or something that's hard for people to stop despite knowing that which is part of what makes it a disorder and then along with similar to anorexia nervosa with bulimia nervosa you also have that same overvaluing of shape and weight in sort of your conceptualization of yourself as a good or a bad person yeah, exactly. And, you know, the way that that comes out a lot of time is people saying they'll be happy once they reach a certain weight or they think they'll be happy when they reach a certain weight or their shape is different. And they're kind of chasing that and think that that's the only thing they can do in their life to make them happy, which is not true usually mm -hmm. for them, but also kind of if you look around at other people that happiness isn't quite correlated to that and the way that they view it. Absolutely. So some of the demographics that go along with bulimia nervosa, uh, this impacts about uh, about 0.5 to about 3% of the general population. Uh, so in about in college students, for example, about 50% of women and 4% of men admit to some sort of purging behavior, uh, maybe not to the full diagnostic criteria. Yeah, that's right. So these symptoms, not to the point of the full-blown disorder, but these symptoms of binging and purging, they're not that rare, even though to have mm -hmm. the full disorder, that's relatively rare. I mean, you see this happening, you know, again, 15% of college women, that's that's not a super small no, amount. No, no, that's, that's a substantial number of, uh, of young women. So, mm -hmm. um, Bleeding nervosa uh, typically you manifest somewhere between the ages of 15 and 29. Uh, these individuals are typically normal weight or slightly overweight. Uh, and um, similar to folks with anorexia nervosa, they do experience some of those medical problems, and they also are susceptible to those elevated rates of suicide as well. Yep, that's absolutely right. And it's thought that the suicide rates are, I mean, this is generally true in suicide research, that they're underestimated because it's not always guaranteed that on death certificates, mm -hmm. the coroner will write suicide mm -hmm. as a cause of death, or they won't write the eating disorder on mm -hmm. there. So you might know that they died through a self-inflicted method, but you don't know that they also had an eating disorder, which makes it hard to really solidly estimate what the rates are. Absolutely. Um, and then there are, of course, some of those medical sort of uh, effects that go along with bulimia nervosa, just like you do see with anorexia nervosa as well, that sort of lead to some of those um, poor or negative medical or health outcomes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we also have binge eating disorder as well. Uh, so binge eating disorder, just like bulimia nervosa, or is similar to bulimia nervosa, rather, but you don't see as many of those compensatory behaviors. 
Um, so with binge eating disorder, this impacts about 1% to 3% about of the general population. Um, and about 30% of those individuals have enrolled in uh, weight loss programs. That's right. So it's not always viewed as an eating disorder. Often people are just presenting because they feel overweight and they don't understand that what they're experiencing is a diagnosable eating disorder. Sure. So um, individuals with binge eating disorder, uh, are, they're typically or often significantly overweight, um, and they might experience some medical problems that are related to the obesity. Um, some of the outcomes, uh, about 18% of those folks still have the disorder five years after. Yeah, this uh, tends to, you tend to see people go in and out of this, sure. like with depression, where mm-hmm. they'll have episodes, times where they're not have, having symptoms, and then it tends to come back without treatment. Absolutely, and, and just like the other two eating disorders, these individuals are also susceptible to uh, elevated suicide attempts or those negative health outcomes related to sort of the disordered eating as well. That's right. I want to quickly mention, if you don't mind, Please. a couple of things that have been named that are not officially in the, the DSM-5 or in the official manual for diagnoses, but that some people have looked at. Um, one of them is orthorexia nervosa, which has gotten some popular press. And these are individuals who don't particularly fit in the other eating disorder categories, but they're so committed to eating healthy that it becomes a problem. So that means they never, maybe they don't, they try to avoid all saturated fat or all sugar. And it gets to the point where it's affecting their family relationships or their friends because they're um, talking about it or thinking about it and it's taking them parts of their mind. So it's interesting. We need to have more research on that. But um, someone who was dealing with this, um, this is the way they described it. This is just a quote um, from someone who recovered from it. The need to obtain meals free of meat, fat, and artificial chemicals have put nearly all social forms of eating beyond my reach. I was lonely and obsessed. I found it terribly difficult to free myself. I had been seduced by righteous eating. The problem of my life's meaning had been transferred inexorably to food, and I could not reclaim it. So, very painful. Absolutely. Um, Reminds me a little bit of... The guy on Parks and Recreation oh, who yeah. Rob Lowe plays. Yeah, but I Chris don't, Traeger. Yeah, but I don't know how extreme it is. Does he suffer any distress or impairment from it? Um, So I think um, his stuff, I'm trying to remember now because it's been a little bit. He is very sort of obsessive with his vitamins, I remember. Mm-hmm. And I know he's... I would I would like to take a look back, but okay. I'm not sure because I know I'm thinking of one specific example right now where he and Ron Swanson sort of have a burger cookoff, oh, okay. and he's very comfortable eating a hamburger. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think that maybe would be a piece of evidence against it. And of course, a part of the problem with fictional characters is there's not always consistency in right. how the characters portrayed. Uh, but I think a little bit more of where his obsessions are from is uh, health and illness mm-hmm. um, due to. Uh, like I think a bloodborne illness that he had as a child, um, so he was not supposed to survive that long, and so he's just very much worried about illness and thinks of his body as a microchip where one piece of sand could throw off the whole system. So I see. It, so yeah. it kind of manifests as like a bigger picture of health. Yes, stuff. a little bit okay. more than specific. But eating is a component of sort okay. of the way he uh, exhibit or presents himself. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's very interesting. Um, another thing that's been talked about originally. Well, it was looked at as, is it a possible eating disorder, but it ended up in body dysmorphic disorder, which is called um, muscle dysmorphia. It's also been called a Dunnis complex. This is when individuals, it's also been called bigorexia. It's thought of as reverse anorexia in a way. It's where people 
view themselves as scrawny when they want to be muscular. Okay. And so often people who have this will do things like excessive workouts, excessive supplements, or even take steroids because they never feel that they're muscular enough. But this... Um, in the DSM-5, it is grouped as a body dysmorphic disorder when people are seeing distorted images of their own body. But sometimes, I mean, eating comes into play in that. And so I thought it was worth mentioning. It does tend to be more common in, in men than women. Okay. And so just to kind of clarify for folks who are listening, mm-hmm. these are sort of things that are being explored as being potential disorders listed in the DSM-5. Oh. The, the muscle dis, or body dysmorphic disorder is now... Right, right, and so a type of it is muscle dysmorphic. Okay, right? Yeah, yeah, and then orthorexia nervosa is something that's yeah that's being explored. Okay, mm-hmm. very yep. interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so uh, that's kind of a quick uh, overview of eating disorders and just kind of some of the diagnostic criteria. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second, Katie, uh, just for the sake and interest of eating disorder awareness month. Can you think of, as someone who knows about eating disorders? Uh, any myths maybe that people might have about eating disorders that might be good uh, for people just to to have the accurate facts about? And if not, that's okay. Uh, I'm more than happy to just edit out this question. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fine. Some of the main ones, one I kind of talked about with my study, which is a myth that it's something that almost exclusively affects young white girls or women, and that's simply not true. That that group... um, is affected by eating disorders, but men are affected by eating disorders. People of all different ethnicities, sexual orientation are affected by eating disorders. So um, it's important. You know, part of the reason that study was important to me is because I I had a friend of um, one of my sisters who had an experience where she was actually presenting to a physician with eating disorder symptoms and was not recognized and she wondered if part of it was because she belonged to an ethnic minority group and they didn't they weren't suspicious of eating disorders and there are data that show beyond my experimental study show in the natural environment that when people ask about eating disorders even the symptoms being equal they're more likely to recognize it in white individuals so that's one myth a second one is that eating disorders are about vanity mm-hmm and uh, people who just care too much about their looks. You know, sometimes eating disorders can start out as dieting, and that dieting is interested in changing your looks, and, you know, you have some control over it. But when it gets to the point of the eating disorder, people really don't have that much control. They can't just stop doing what they're doing. And they their minds are telling them, that their appearance is super important to them. It's not about being shallow. It's not about being vain. And so that's another myth that I hear about kind of related to that. A lot of people believe with something like binge eating disorder or when people are overweight that if you make fun of them or tease them or bring up their weight to them, then they'll feel bad enough that they'll lose weight. And the research just shows the opposite is true. When people who are overweight are teased or stigmatized, they're less likely to go to the gym, maybe because they feel more Mm self-conscious. They're more likely to have um, overeating episodes. Maybe, you know, people sometimes do that to um, regulate their moods. Mm -hmm. And so those are the three that I hear a lot. I'm sure there are others, but those are some of the main ones. Okay, interesting. Well, uh, maybe uh, to jump into our next segment here and talk a little bit about body image in comics. Now, I think the am I remembering this right that 
you recently tweeted uh, off the Jedi Council page a survey that was looking at body image in comics? Or yeah, that was... A, not related to us, but, but something that was shared? It was more about gender and comics, oh, okay. so it was kind of looking at personality characteristics. Oh, okay. So it did have appearance as part of that, but okay. it, it, was, it was a bunch of stuff. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So people are taking... So this is an issue that people are looking at and worth talking about, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, I know that sort of... Uh, the, there's sort of been a, maybe a long history of uh, unrealistic depictions of people in comics. And mm-hmm. one thing that we do seem to know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that sort of societal standards and the way that people are depicted uh, can impact um, individuals' percep- body perceptions of themselves and body esteem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of different causes for eating disorders. There certainly seems to be a genetic component Um, If you have family members with eating disorders, it puts you at greater risk for developing that eating disorder. There are psychological components. People who tend to be more perfectionistic or have a harder time regulating their emotions or who have more negative emotions, those people are all at risk. Um, But some of the most compelling evidence that there is a sociocultural contribution to eating disorders is actually from a study by a woman named um, Dr. Becker who was doing some work um, in an anthropological study in Fiji, and she had some data in Fiji before there was access to um, American television, and the body type in Fiji that was viewed as ideal was different than the American body type ideal at the time. It was viewed as uh, larger. And then television was widely available and introduced U.S. television, Mm -hmm. MTV, and things like that. And they um, reassessed adolescence, so they were looking at eating disorder and body image stuff before TV was introduced and after it was years later. And what they found was prior to the introduction of American television, there were essentially 0% reporting binge eating, purging, restrictive eating. Okay. After the introduction of television, their rates were the were comparable to the United oh. States. And so that was a pretty compelling. But oh, absolutely. Since then there have also been other studies looking at effects of exposure to magazines, TV mm-hmm. shows and things like that and looking at how people's esteem is affected by that. And they find that men and women both tend to feel worse about themselves on average after looking at idealized pictures. In addition, it seems that a lot of this, there's been historically a little more focus in how women are depicted um, and uh, and focusing specifically on things like uh, women being photoshopped in magazines so that people are seeing unrealistic pictures but not understanding that they're photoshopped. Um, But there's also been some interesting findings with regard to boys' toys, where if you look at boys' toys over the last several decades, they're much more muscular than they were. And so people have also wondered if some of the relatively lower rates of eating disorder symptoms and body dissatisfaction among boys uh, would be dwindling away as we see increased pressure with that. And so when I... Preparing for this podcast, I looked to see if people had looked at superheroes, because mm-hmm. most superheroes are depicted as very muscular, mm-hmm. right? Um, certainly, Affleck, as he was preparing to be Batman, kind of, there was a lot of talk about how different he looked from Adam West, for example. Oh, yeah. So that would be a clear demonstration mm-hmm. of the 
the differing body types over time for superheroes. I, I don't know if mm-hmm. it's true or not, but I read that uh, Henry Cavill walked on to sort of the set on one of the early days, looked at uh, Ben Affleck, turned around and just went right to the gym <laughs> because he didn't believe that Superman should be smaller than Batman. Well, see, even so. he was affected by that uh, yeah, immediately, so. and he was already probably in pretty good shape mm-hmm. as preparing for Superman. Yeah, that's... So imagine us run-of-the-mill folks right. watching Batman, um, Affleck as Batman. So I didn't see any specific studies looking at superheroes. There are a couple of things. Um, if people who are listening know of any, feel free to send them to me. But there has been some attention paid to comics because there has been some push and movement to change the representation within comics of how women are presented. I haven't seen as much about that with men or anything mm-hmm. about that, have you? Um, I saw, the only thing I've seen is I saw one thing that was sort of a decade by decade, decade example, and it sort of was a, a, you know, a frame by frame showing how Batman was depicted from a muscular sort of perspective mm-hmm. across the decades. That's the only thing I saw, and it was something someone tweeted, but that's the only thing I've seen. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, part of it, too, is a larger part of representation of women in comics, right? So some of it is about uh, sexualizing mm-hmm. female characters, and some of it is about... Um, Gail Simone wrote about uh, women in the refrigerator, talking about all of the negative things that happen to women in comics, like... Uh, Batgirl, what happened with Joker right. paralyzing her and things like that. So um, perhaps body image is just part of the broader dis- discussion of um, with regard to sexualization or realistic representations of women in comics. So one thing that I thought I'd mention relevant to this world, actually there are two things. Um, one of them is that there is a relatively new comic by Valiant Comics called Faith and Um, Faith is a character who had been around for a while, but in her earlier iterations, she was, uh, so she is an overweight character. She would probably be categorized as obese. And she was apparently made fun of a lot, like there were a lot of fat jokes at her expense. Mm -hmm. But she was also known for having kind of like an overly optimistic, peppy personality. So in, in the story, there was the jokes, or sort of just in what people thought. In of the, the story, okay. so she wasn't a main character, but she was in there and kind of made fun of. Okay. And so, the the writer for it, who who made this, this is in 2016, um, decided Faith would be a great main character and would challenge some stereotypes. First of all, she flies and she's. Uh, agile and athletic despite the fact that she's not doesn't have the typical body type she's also not down or shy or lacking confidence and in fact the writer there's a great article in the Atlantic that maybe we can link to about this specifically decided not to have her focus on her weight or body image in this and rather to make it similar to other superheroes and in that that's a factor about her but it's not the main thing that characterizes her. So that's pretty cool, and apparently it's quite popular, too. That oh, I think it very quickly went to multiple printings. Okay, awesome. So that's pretty cool. So people are interested in um, supporting this sort of representation uh, in comics, then, is, is yeah. something that we can Yeah, some people that. don't like it, but 
you know, other people are interested in it. And I thought the Atlantic article also made a good point. They said Jessica Jones is really good, and it is very good. But even in Jessica Jones, uh, we're talking about the series, not the comic here, the Netflix series. Within 10 minutes of the show's pilot, and I noticed this too, she's spying on Luke Cage, and her binoculars go up to a woman on a treadmill who's eating hamburger, and she says two minutes on a treadmill, 20 minutes on a quarter pounder. And... As they point out the Atlantic, this doesn't make Jessica Jones not a good show. It's just that wasn't really necessary. It didn't advance the plot. It didn't tell you more about Jessica. It's just kind of like a cheap joke that we yeah. see a lot in mm-hmm. television shows. So Faith is a nice counter to that. Um, the other person that I wanted, and, and the idea also is just having diversity and representation in comics so people can relate to that um, and define kind of stereotypes. But and I've been talking for a no, while. Please. I don't want to say no, anything no, about that. No, this is very interesting. No, I th- I think that uh, I I I, um, I miss or I don't remember. That was kind of part of the problem with watching Jessica Jones in like one sitting. Mm-hmm. Is, I, is I sort of all blended together. So uh, I, I maybe missed that joke or I didn't catch it. Or sometimes I'm typing while I'm watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes sense why jokes like that. And, and this is something that I've kind of run into lately. Is sort of this. Uh, idea or this pushback against people who are saying you know jokes like that aren't really okay uh and people say well it's just a joke but um, what we know is that jokes like that perpetuate an underlying sort of societal acceptance uh of that sort of um misinformation as well as uh, an exclusion to some people Mm -hmm. um that's that has psychological impact i guess it does and the impact as i mentioned is that when when things like that, when so people who are overweight watching that joke, it doesn't make them feel, wow, I'm ashamed. Some people, mm-hmm. but but the relative minority are going to say, oh, I feel ashamed. I need to lose weight now. Rather, what happens is feeling worse, more negative emotions, and feeling more self-conscious. So less likely to go to the gym, less likely to try to eat healthier. And so it's not, from a public health perspective, helpful either you or know. helping maybe uh someone feel included in a show that was meant to help empower women who are mm-hmm. uh survivors of sexual assault maybe like i think there's a direct quote quote in that article that was like i didn't feel like that that was meant for me then mm-hmm. so and on a far less important note and i've said this to you before i think it's comedically lazy oh yeah because that i mean big bang theory um that they're, the the whole they have a whole episode where the funny thing is that the person's overweight supposedly. I mean, it's just sure. that's the joke is that they're overweight. And what's that other one? I'm trying to think of. Um, oh, N- New Girl. There's oh, also sure. there are also some big jokes about that. And in Friends, that was a, now mm. that's older, so you know whatever. But that was a huge joke about Monica when she was really overweight and all this stuff. And so it's like. Let's get a little more creative. And Jessica yeah. Jones at other times does get much more creative. So yes. again, I love the show, but that that's um, stuck out to me too. It's an example of even where people, writers, shows with good intentions um, might be... Um, I might be impacting people in a negative way. Exactly. So the other thing that I will briefly mention is a cool character that I learned more about from reading Ray Dillon and Renee DeLiz. It's The Legend of Wonder Woman. Um is Etta Candy, and she's a character that's been in Wonder Woman since 1942. She was written by the original Wonder Woman creator, William Moulton Marston, and she's always been depicted as being someone who is 
curvier and and not as muscular or slim but she's the sidekick she's very active in helping wonder woman adjust in legend of wonder woman she helps she helps diana to adjust to man's world um and away from themiscara and she also is very funny and she helps her with her fashion sense in fact in the legend of wonder woman she designs what Wonder Woman ultimately wears. And so she's a great character, and she'll be in the live-action film, too, which is which is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's kind of cool. She's definitely an active partner in helping Wonder Woman, and it's not she's not playing this kind of stereotypical uh, person who is either kind of um, down or not as active and those types of things. So, so she's a really fun character. And Renee Deleuze also did... Um, it went got some attention on Twitter, but she talked about some tips for drawing women in comics so that they're not as objectified. Mm -hmm. And she had some really great tips, so we can kind of uh, link to this too. But she talks about, you know, one reasonable rule of thumb is think what I do this to a male character. Like, for example, would I have them twist in a certain way to show off their body parts? If you wouldn't do that, then don't do that with the female characters. Or, you know, maybe the character does call for stiletto heels, but realistically, are superheroes going to be doing their best battles in stilettos? Maybe not. So she kind of focuses more on their athleticism and things like that. And again, their personality. Maybe their personality is that they do dress in a more sexually appealing way or a sexy way, but for every character to be that way, it doesn't really match up is what you're saying. So anyway, she had some great suggestions about that, subtle things that I might, that I wouldn't have thought of or that I didn't notice. Interesting. And for people who might not be familiar with Renee Deleuze, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, she's a, um, uh, an artist, a comic Mm -hmm. book artist. And writer for Legend of Wonder Woman. Um, Very talented too. Oh yeah, she's awesome absolutely well very interesting so uh, in sort of the way that it all ties in of course uh eating disorder awareness month and just sort of thinking about the the depictions of people on sort of a systematic or societal level and the way that they might impact um body esteem uh and self-esteem and uh perceptions and sort of ideal shape and weight so yeah it's it all kind of links in together and uh and i mean i think that uh I mean, there's still work to do, I think. Yeah. I, I was just curious if you think that men, because there isn't a ton of research, if you think men and boys are negatively impacted by um, unrealistically muscular depicted superheroes. If I just had to off the cuff uh, sort of guess based on my intuition, which is, of course, not comfortable for science minded folks <laughs> like ourselves, I would say yes. I, I, I very much believe that, uh, you know thinking about some of because if you think about superheroes who are sort of supposed to be role models Mm -hmm. and ideals for us to strive towards it does add up in my mind that um the same might apply to men especially when thinking about the idea that eating disorders also affect men so it might apply in the same sort of way that uh depictions um like that very muscular and looking a certain way might impact men's perception of themselves in the same way is mm-hmm. a guess mm-hmm. and usually what's happened from a psychological level is that people are seeing a picture of i don't know um cat woman or something or they're or you know a real life person they're comparing themselves negatively and saying i don't look like that so there's something wrong with me and feeling bad for most people that state will pass 
for people who have really a vulnerability, maybe either genetically or um, psychologically, like maybe they're really perfectionistic, they are more likely to be negatively impacted by that. Absolutely. And I talked a long time, so I'll keep my treatment segment very brief. That's not, hey, uh, there's nothing wrong. I, I, we shoot for those good 30-minute episodes, and lately, we've, we've as we've kind of grown as podcasters and realized how much we like to hear ourselves talk, we've been clocking in closer to an hour, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So, Katie, tell us about treatments for eating disorders. How do you treat them? I will be brief, but I will say there are evidence-based treatments, and um, we can link to that so you can find out what they are. One of the ones that's been found to be Two that have been found to be particularly helpful for bulimia are cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal therapy. Um, for anorexia in adolescents, something that's the, the frontline treatment for that is called family-based therapy. It's also called the Maudsley approach. I will link to that, but basically it involves uh, the family being involved in the recovery process. But the history of that would be a whole nother episode. So I'll just say that we'll link to that and that there is help available. In addition, there are some medications that have seemed to be helpful for some disorders, but I recommend that you seek help from a mental health or medical professional and don't rely on the podcast for decision making on that. Absolutely. One more thing that I want to do, uh, since we did uh, tweet out if people had any questions, I don't want to oh, yeah. I don't want to cut off the person who was kind enough to respond to us. That's right. Our good friend Lauren who is uh, on Twitter um, at Penguin Gone Mad. Lauren, who also does tweet some interesting things, she's sort of in on all of the interesting psychology or comic stuff, especially. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't like to admit this, but definitely probably knows uh, Batman the Animated Series <laughs> better than I do. Uh, she's got a pretty impressive knowledge of it. Um, and I also like talking to her about everything Batman related. Anyway, she uh, was kind enough to ask us when we tweeted out asking if people had questions about eating disorders in anticipation for this episode. She was wondering, um, not about comics per se, but what are some of the do's and don'ts when helping a loved one overcome their eating disorder? Which I think is an absolutely wonderful question, very relevant for Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Yeah, I think that is a really great question. So one of the the do's is listen and understand try to understand and empathize with the person it's really hard to do that for someone who doesn't have an eating disorder because it can feel frustrating why don't they just eat or why don't they just do this instead of um, having a compassionate stance and it's important to understand that that's where the disorder part is that the person doesn't have full control over their behavior like people without eating disorders there's a very strong force when you have an eating disorder pushing you to act in those ways that doesn't mean they can't be changed with treatment but it means it's very hard to just will yourself out of it and so one of the things i would say to do is to try to listen and And try to be compassionate, even if you don't fully understand it. But what can happen is if something, if you say something judgmental, like, oh, why don't you just stop doing that? Or you're doing that for attention or you're being vain or whatever. It shuts the person down and they're they're more likely to hide, especially people who feel ashamed about the fact that they have an eating disorder. The second most important thing is to try to encourage the person to seek out professional help and You can offer to go with them if they're afraid. You can offer to find information with them and being supportive. So that way you yourself are not trying to change their behavior, but you're trying to connect them with someone who can. And those are the top two things that come out to me. What about you? 
Uh, I'm going to defer to your to your expertise on that one, um, because I think those were great suggestions, and I also know that we're coming in on 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing I would just say is that if you can ask the person what would be helpful, and if it's something mm-hmm. that is unhealthy, then you know, don't do that. If they say it would be helpful if we didn't keep food in the house because then I won't be tempted, that's not really a healthy way to manage. However, if they say it's helpful when I can eat with you or there's some distraction while we're eating or it's helpful when I'm feeling down if we can go do something fun together, then those are all great ways that, that you can help. I think if I think it's an awesome question from Lauren. And mm-hmm. I think uh, a general answer maybe for any uh, for a loved one or a friend with any disorder uh, if you could just boil it down to a couple of really basic, quick uh, steps, would be listen, uh, support, validate, and help connect them to a professional. I think if well you had said. to sum it up, that's what I would say, mm-hmm. just as a general response mm-hmm. um, for anyone looking for advice. Um, and also, uh, you know, get resources for yourself, too, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of really good resources for people who do have loved ones with uh, any sort of disorder. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, a pearl of wisdom or the class. I always have to. I didn't leave enough time for the wonderful Mm -hmm. chime. The world renowned Oscar winning (laughs) pearls of wisdom with Brandon. Uh, Oscars. I didn't watch them, but I heard about the drama. All I know is Lin-Manuel did not win for Mona. And I always want him to win. It was Robert. I'm on his side. That's what it was. (laughs) Clear and simple. It was such a great song, but there were lots of good songs. Anyway. I guess. Um, no, uh, my pearl of wisdom for this week, uh, it's Eating Disorder Awareness Week. So my pearl of wisdom is actually a request for this week. And what it, the request is, is just take a look at uh, some of the resources available. Uh, just to quickly learn a little something about eating disorder awareness. And, uh, you know, in, just in case you or a loved one or someone you know might be suffering, that way you maybe could recognize the signs and uh, you can facilitate someone who is in need of treatment maybe getting it that would be my my pearl slash request of wisdom for the week anything to add to that katie the only thing i would say is that sometimes people confide in you and say i'm suffering from this but don't tell anyone oh yeah and you worry about breaking their trust but if someone is in danger uh, or of getting really hurt or of harming themselves it's important that you talk to their loved ones, whether it's their parents or their spouse or whoever it is, to try to get that person to get help. Even if the person in the short term is unhappy about that, it's worth encouraging them to show them how important it is that they seek help. Especially considering the lethality mm-hmm. of uh, eating exactly. disorders and anorexia nervosa specifically, but eating disorders mm-hmm. generally with those elevated suicide rates. Uh, it's something I've heard before too, uh, you know, just in regards to suicide more broadly is, uh, you know, they maybe someone confided in me and I don't want to ruin our mm-hmm. friendship I don't want to break their trust. Well, those are hard things to do, but the trade-off is you're potentially saving their life. Exactly. Yeah, so. All right, well, we'll wrap it up there, folks. Thank you so much for listening in. We hope that maybe you learned a little something about eating disorders and maybe a little something about uh, eating body image and comics and sort of how it all ties together. Uh, this is such an interesting and complex topic. We could do uh, several episodes about it more maybe we'll talk come back to it more than likely if there are specific things you'd like to hear us talk more about let us know absolutely um like the treatment for example oh absolutely yeah we we uh for uh brevity's sake Mm -hmm. that was a brief treatment section but um thanks always as always for listening you can find uh, our blog posts 
our podcasts, our links to Facebook and Twitter at uh, www.jedi-council.com. And we have a new blog post on there that is about Hamilton and Burr as depicted in the musical. Absolutely. A very good one. Um, you probably know this if you follow us on any social media. We are now a part of the absolutely wonderful Geek Therapy Podcast Network. It's just a great group of folks. Uh, we're so lucky and happy to be involved in such a great community. And we can't encourage you enough if you haven't checked out any of the other shows on the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. Please check those out. They are very much worth listening to. Uh, shows like the Geek Therapy Podcast uh, we've got Rolling for Change, Psych Tech, Headshots. So uh, there's technology, there's gaming, there's just everything you could want uh, in this network. It's a great group of people. A lot of really quality content, so check all of that out. Uh, and if you could do me a favor, I, I'd really appreciate it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're you're obviously at least somewhat liking what you're hearing. You're still here an hour later. Uh, just Unless you're hate listening. Unless you're hate listening, <laughs> then you can turn it off now. But if you're like listening, then uh, then I'm just requesting, you know, uh, leave, uh, leave us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, if you're liking the show, that's how other people are going to find out about it. We don't pay for any advertising. The only way people hear about the show is uh, because you guys tell your friends, there's these two nerdy sort of psychology people, and they're kind of interesting, so check it out. So, yeah, I think that's all I've got. Uh, anything else, Katie? Stay tuned for more details. On We'll be live streaming a podcast in a oh, couple weeks we from, will, yeah. from our local comic shop, Paradox. But we'll put more details about that through social media once they're all nailed Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Our first uh, podcast live stream mm-hmm. uh, extravaganza uh, Jedi Council 2017 extraordinaire. <laughs> fun, <That's>, run. <laughs> that, fun run. Fun <laughs> run. That's the full name. Uh, all right, folks. Um, uh, I didn't look up any fancy sign-offs. This is how many episodes have we done now? Mm-hmm. Like over thirty, I think for sure. I think that is true. Um, so I'm. We're learning something about my capacity to come up with sign-offs, <laughs> and it clocks out somewhere around thirty. Uh, thir- oh, so this will be the 33rd episode um, 33 I can't think of anything that kind of goes with that uh, Bye <laughs>